1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crowe, our banking editor, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line from New York, we have Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. Our guest today is Tom Godsling, a pay expert and partner at PwC. Today, we'll be talking about Brexit and the bank's planning for any kind of Brexit, A look at banker pay as rows break out across various parts of Europe. And finally, an examination of what's going on in the mortgage market to trapped mortgagees. First, though, to that Brexit topic. And as uncertainty continues to pervade the political landscape over negotiations in the British Parliament in particular, banks, too, are confused as to what they should do. We're joined by Laura down the line from New York. Laura, what exactly have you been seeing in terms of your research as to what the banks are doing? JP Morgan in particular, I think, has been doing some late-stage planning on things.
2: So, David Crowe and I have been writing about the plans and the actions that the international banks are taking ahead of Brexit. In one example, we had JP Morgan Chase, the big American bank, which has recently told Between two and 300 of its London-based staff has issued them with the new employment contracts for the new EU entities. And they've been told that in the event of a hard Brexit, as early as the end of March, they will be required to be at work in these new EU entities by the 1st of April. I think this really hammers home the literal impact of Brexit and the impact the uncertainty is having on individual people's lives and plans. Because these people would have gotten these letters about two weeks before their actual theoretical start date. And they still don't know 100% at what date they will have to actually show up for work in these different EU entities. So these people would all have been notified previously. I mean, it wouldn't come as a surprise to them that they're on the list. But the timing of it has gone right down to the war for these people. I think that Brexit can become such an abstract thing for us. And we talk about the billions leaving and the trillions leaving and all the new entities being set up in the big numbers. We kind of forget that there's actually individual people who are sitting here in their offices in London... This week thinking, I'm not sure will I be here in a month's time or will I be in Frankfurt or will I be in Paris or will I be in Dublin.
1: And is JP an outlier here? How does it compare with what others are doing?
2: JP Morgan is something of an outlier in this and that most of the big banks have actually sent people out much earlier. So I remember Bank of America had most of its Irish team in place several months ago. They've also already sent people to Paris. If we think about Goldman Sachs over a year ago, I remember the head of their European operation telling me they already had more than half of their people had already actually moved to the market. So I think J. Morgan has left it pretty late. That does have a certain cost advantage to it. It means that you don't end up having to do things that ultimately you don't legally have to do because there was a lot of uncertainty about how many people at banks would actually have to move. And that's down to, in part, the details of the deal that the EU and the UK strike and what level of access UK entities have to the EU's financial services market. And we still don't know that. So it may turn out that the banks who have moved a large number of people ahead of time, that they've actually done more than they strictly speaking need to do. So I think what JP Morgan have done is really preserve a lot of optionality in their planning. The thing is, there are so many unknowns and there have been so many unknowns for the entire of the Brexit period, and if anything, the unknowns have only increased as we get closer to the deadline that I really wouldn't envy anyone planning these Brexit plans. No, actually, there is one person I would envy, and that's the head of Deutsche Bank's Investment Bank, Garth Ritchie. He's also the head of their London operation. He's being paid an extra €250,000 per month for Brexit planning. So I think he's probably the one guy I would envy planning all this, but for the most part, These are very difficult decisions, it's a very suboptimal position to be in, trying to make such big decisions with such massive uncertainty. So I think we have to cut firms a bit of slack in this regard.
1: So David, as Laura said, just to bring you in here for a broader context, you've been working together on kind of researching exactly what everybody's doing here. Are there any other interesting
3: examples of late stage planning that you've come across? Well, there's a sort of broad spectrum really of approaches. You've seen some banks like Bank of America and Goldman Sachs move much earlier. Indeed, Bank of America have been most public saying that they've hit the button, they've moved people and there's no going back. We also saw this week RBS, the UK taxpayer-backed bank, sort of hit the start button on its entity in the Netherlands and has started servicing clients in the European economic area out of that. I mean, the headline really is that banks are no longer waiting around to see what happens with the political process. They have had enough, basically, and they're moving ahead. Probably just as well. It's anybody's guess when we're going to find out the political
1: arrangement, I guess. Let me stay with you, David, for our second topic and a look at the broad picture on banker pay. We've been reporting a few incidents across Europe in particular where investor tensions have been inflamed a little and certainly there's been some bank response uh, changes of approach on pay. What's stood out for
3: you? Well, Bank of Pay has come roaring back as a big topic for investors after a short period of self-imposed restraint. And so we've seen at Deutsche Bank a doubling of pay both for its investment banking boss and its chief executive, a 30% pay rise for the chief executive of Credit Suisse and indeed a sort of row brewing over pensions in the United Kingdom. And it just kind of goes to show really that investors are going to keep up the pressure here. One or two years of showing some kind of restraint is not enough, not least when share prices are tumbling across the board. And indeed, in the case of Deutsche Bank, people sort of seem to think it's particularly egregious. Their investment banking boss, Garth Ritchie, getting a €250,000 Brexit payment for his extra responsibilities associated with Brexit, which, of course, lots of us have and not all of us get that. And to be
1: clear, that's 250000 a month, not per year. So he's basically doubled his annual salary having to deal with Brexit. Yeah, I'm sure your check is in the post as well, David, for writing about Brexit. Let me bring Tom Gosling in here. Tom, you've been a pay expert for many years. You, of course, work with lots of companies in this space, so I appreciate you don't want to talk about individual cases, but one of the pegs for the UK side of this debate coming to the fore again is when HSBC moved 10 days or so ago to reduce the value of pension contributions that were being made for senior executives from 30% of salary to 10%, bringing that broadly into line with contributions for mainstream employees That puts them out of kilter, if you like, with a lot of the other big banks where senior executives continue to get relatively high ratios that that kind of 30 percent number seems to be typical. Tell us more broadly what's been going on here in this space and why it's come to the fore. Well, thank you,
4: Patrick. And uh, this isn't just a bank issue in the UK. This is an issue that we're seeing across the market. And it's really the eventual unwind of a very long history of pension provision that goes all the way back to the generous final salary schemes that executives used to get in the 1980s. And as tax law gradually sort of made them less and less effective, we saw them being replaced by these sort of pension allowances, which are sort of defined contribution amounts that replace pensions. And this has come to focus across the market now, really because of the public concern about executive pay generally, but this being a particularly symptomatic issue around the question of fairness. Because whilst I think people can get their heads around why a chief executive should be paid more than an ordinary employee or should receive incentives that are higher than an ordinary employee, it's more difficult to explain why someone who's paid more should also get a higher proportionate pension benefit. So this is an area where there's been pressure building for some time. And we've seen it really come to the fore through the update to the UK Corporate Governance Code last year, which said that pensions should be aligned with the
1: wider workforce. And that's what's really driving the debate and the shareholder discussions now. So are you thinking we are going to get more banks and other companies coming into line, if you like, aligning those top executive proportions with that of mainstream workers? It's inevitable if they want to comply. It is inevitable.
4: And, you know, and I think most people would accept that some of these historic pension provisions are a bit of an anachronism that I think will move out over time. But I think it is really important in this to look at what the code actually says and what investors who are the enforcers of the code have actually said. The code does say that executive pension benefits should be aligned with the wider workforce, but it also recognises that this may not be practical where you have existing contractual agreements but it's something that boards should do for new appointments and indeed the investment associations and guidelines have said that they will apply their sort of red top warning to companies that do not appoint new hires on a pension that is aligned with the wider workforce so the focus really has been on complying for new hires and almost all companies and banks have indeed adopted that what we are seeing though is that there are some Particularly UK investors who would like to see faster voluntary progress also for existing executives. I think we have to acknowledge this is genuinely a difficult issue for boards because these are contractual commitments and I think boards are quite concerned about setting precedents that every time the environment changes you can rip up a contractual commitment and restate it because that does erode trust in their ability for recruiting in the future. So I think if we fast forward five years into the future I think we'll be in a world where these things are completely aligned and there's no difference between executive pensions and wider employee pensions in the UK.
1: One final question, the kind of broader picture of pay, as David was saying, there's a kind of sense of banks generally still not performing as certainly as they used to in terms of returns. The idea that executives are starting to get paid much more generously despite the continued falls in share prices, despite the continued low levels of return on equity, is annoying quite a few investors that we talk to. In that broader spectrum of banker pay, what do you see happening? What are going to be the flashpoints going forward?
4: I think there are two really broad themes here. One is that, you know, I think we have been in a position where banks have paid lower amounts as a proportion of their incentive opportunities than has been the case in other sectors of the market. And as bank returns have started getting back to more acceptable levels, we started to see that unwind. And that's part of what's driven these increases. I would say that probably banks in the UK, partly because of the political and shareholder environment here, have been much more cautious about that on the whole than in some other European territories. And they have generally sought to increase awards and increase bonus pools at a slower rate than the increase in profitability and returns. So there's been a conscious sort of allocation of improved performance towards shareholders. And I think banks are going to have to continue being very careful about that balance until they're returning above cost of equity on a systematic basis. So that's going to continue to be a pressure point. I think the other flashpoint here is that it's a particularly difficult issue for those banks that are involved in investment banking they face the reality of a market where we have some very buoyant american investment banks operating in europe who have a very strong home market conditions and are able to afford strong levels of pay and investment banking is a business where people do move for pay and you have to slightly be in the game or not in the game. And I think this is going to be a continued area of pressure. And I'm going to sort of slightly misquote and paraphrase, but a couple of years ago, Jamie Dimon said something along the lines of, you know, in 10 years time, when we dominate investment banking, it won't be because we were so much smarter, it was because we stuck at it. And you know, there is an element where I think the US banks would like to see nothing more than a retreat by some of the European players. So they are in quite a bind, but you know, investors do get frustrated when they see pay getting disjointed from performance in some of these divisions
1: it's a bit of a vicious circle as you say tom thanks so much for your thoughts on that and on to our third and final topic nick you've been looking at what the uk regulators have been saying about mortgagees who are trapped in their current mortgage arrangements and urging them to be more generous. This doesn't sound like something that regulators normally do when they're concerned about the state of the credit market being overheated. What exactly is going on here?
5: Yeah, I mean, when you phrase it that way, it could sound a little bit strange to say, why would a regulator be encouraging people to potentially loosen their affordability criteria? But this is quite an odd situation. It kind of goes back to what happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis, where we decided that banks had to put in stricter rules on who they give mortgages to which made sense after the collapse of people like northern rock but it creates an awkward situation for those who already have mortgages they potentially took something out in 2005 2007 get to the end of maybe a three or five year fixed term want to remortgage that but they don't meet any of the new stricter criteria so they then get stuck on variable rates that can cost thousands of pounds a year more that's not as big an issue if you're with someone like Barclays who still does new mortgages, you could stick with them and they probably don't do a credit check on existing customers. So you can switch. But for the people who were at lenders that stopped doing new loans or that collapsed entirely and ended up selling the loans on to people like private equity firms, those firms don't do any new lending. So the customer there just ends up completely trapped. And the FSA reckons about 150,000 people are still a decade aren't affected by this. So that's what they've been trying to fix with the suggestions today.
1: It's significant numbers of people, as you say. And the example of Northern Rock is a good one because a lot of those mortgages have ended up in the hands of private equity players like Cerberus, for example, which is a pretty aggressive firm, which wants, obviously, to recover the money that has been lent out, but as you say, are not in the business of new mortgage lending. So they're not going to be providing new deals, new attractive fixed rate deals for three years and so on. But these people are potentially in a 20, 30 year mortgage, having to pay the variable rate that Cerberus has imposed, and they're not really able to go anywhere else. So what does the FCA's announcement today do for those people in practice?
5: there's two parts to it. The first thing that is specifically for people whose loans are owned by someone like Cerberus, who, as you say, don't have an incentive to encourage you to switch to anyone else because they want to keep you there, getting as much money out of you as possible. They are now going to be forced to go through their customer books, essentially, look through everyone and contact people and tell them if they are eligible to potentially switch to another provider. That's something that the mainstream banks have had to do for a while already and now the non-licensed companies are going to have to do that as well. The second point is they're making it easier for other providers to cater to those people who might be switching away from people like Cerberus. So if you are someone who has been keeping up to date on all of your mortgage payments then lenders will be allowed to be a little bit more flexible in their affordability checks which makes sense on a practical level to avoid having a situation where at the moment you could have someone who the bank could run its checks and say, sorry, we don't think you can afford to pay 1200 pounds a month, even though you're demonstrably paying 1500 pounds a month at the moment and have been for the last decade.
1: Yeah, if your track record is there, then other lenders will be encouraged to take on your business.
0: Yeah,
5: essentially, which is why it's been pretty much welcomed by most people in the sector as being a slightly common sense. Obviously, there'll be a lot of focus on how those who don't have quite as much incentive i.e. the private equity and insurer owners actually carry this out
1: yeah their response will be an interesting one thank you for that nick well that's it for this week all that's left for me to do is to thank david nick and laura and also our guest tom gosling from pwc thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com offer. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.